North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. Today on the podcast, we have special guest Chris Miller, who is the has headed up pastoral care in the National Vineyard Movement for the last 11 years. Is in town doing a class on spiritual direction. So we had him drop by and he uh, delivered a message on encountering Jesus in suffering. Really good stuff. So let's head to the talk. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Chris Miller. Do I need to hold it like this? Is, it right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. If God is with you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Bring out the snakes and yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, it is an absolute privilege to be at Crispin with Crispin and and, and Dina and uh, be a part here uh, with the church. It's it's a privilege. Uh, what a cool place. I think. I mean, vineyard churches are kind of cool, but this is like one of the coolest on the planet. I think. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, Crispin shared, sorry, uh, a little bit about uh, who I am and, and, and what I do. And actually, one of the great privileges has been to uh, be with various leaders in the Vineyard Movement at different points in their lives of, of transition or, or crisis or trying to figure out what's next in their life and, and seeking the Lord and I have an absolutely wonderful team of psychologists and marriage and family therapists and people that do spiritual direction and inner healing and, and uh, just help people out a- along the way. And, and the last 11 years, it has really shaped my life. And one of the things that it's given me is uh, how, do we, how do we experience God? Where is God in difficulties? Where is God in trials? Because I tend to, we tend to associate God with happy feelings in those moments of peace or joy or ecstasy, you know, like this is awesome. But, but where is God when it's difficult? I understand you've been going through the Sermon on the Mount and you've been talking about longing uh, recently. Is that right? Am I correct? So today I'm doing a little bit of detour out of the Sermon on the Mount, but not really out of it, sort of behind it and looking at a big picture of, of, of suffering and difficulty and how we experience God there. And I have to admit, it's a little uh, awkward to come and talk about trials and difficulty and suffering to people you don't know. I don't usually show up at a party and say, hi, my name's Chris. I've been fired from a church before. My marriage is on the rocks or, you know, whatever it is, you know, these are not the things that we front. In fact, I find uh, I don't like to be perceived, especially males, I think, as weak or vulnerable. And so to find that God is at work here, I think, is a great, uh, a, a great growth area. These are not the scriptures that we tend to put on our refrigerator. You know, can you imagine, you know, Psalm 42, 3, my tears have been my food day and night while men say to me, where is your God? That's not put on my refrigerator. Maybe that could be a new diet, you know, trick. Put that. Or, you know, I think about a bedroom decoration. I don't tend to put scriptures like Psalm 63, 
uh, or, or, I mean, chapter 6, verses 3 and 6, where it says this, My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? I am worn out from groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. That's not one that we tend to decorate, you know, our, our bedrooms with. It's just, you know... Or, you know, we have positive verses, uh, with, with, but I, I've never seen one with a big smiley face on it that has First Peter 4 that says, do not be surprised at this trials and the suffering that you're enduring. But here's one that I think could work, especially in Houston where I'm from. It would be a bumper sticker that says, blessed are you. So here's Sermon on the Mount. You could put this on your bumper sticker, blessed are you when people insult you and call you all kinds of names because of me. That one, I think, uh, might work. Or uh, where Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. I think that's kind of like a Christian version of stuff happens, you know, or something. I think that one, that one could work. So I don't like to focus on difficulty and trial, but one of the things that I've found, especially in groups of churches like ours, where we celebrate and enjoy uh, the very presence and power of God to heal and deliver but then when that's not happening, we begin to ask questions, so where's God? You know, we're a movement that was birthed out of um, uh, books like called Power Evangelism and Power Healing, which is wonderful, and I love that. But today, if I could give this a title, I think I'd call it Power Groaning. How is it that I go about in the power of the Spirit that is living with God through difficulties and trials. Romans 8, if you read Romans 8, uh, about 18 through 25, and I'm just going to pull out a few verses and note them. In verse, you see that there's lots of groaning going on. Do you know who's groaning in Romans chapter 8? Well, verse 22 tells us that creation itself is groaning. And then we find in verse 23 that we are groaning. And then we find in verse 26 that the Holy Spirit is groaning within us when we don't know what to pray for. So if you read Romans 8, it's like you're listening to a chorus of groaning going up before God. I wonder what that sounds like. We can learn to groan together with the Holy Spirit. And there's some perceptions and just an overall kind of theology or a big picture that I want to give us to say, here's what it means to live in a fellowship in, with God's suffering, with his suffering. Here's what it means to do power groaning, to be with him through difficulties and trials. If we don't learn this, see, here's the deal. We live in, I'm sure Crispin and other teachers talk about a kingdom come and coming so the kingdom has come and we see healing and salvation and justice breaks in and there's peace and we celebrate it and yet it's not fully here and so there's lack of justice and, and difficult things going on around our globe right now and poverty and lack of salvation so we groan. But here's another truth that holds us in tension is that God has wonderfully revealed himself and he's hidden. He's hidden and he has come close to us in Christ by the Spirit. So this whole thing of the kingdom, as well as God's very revelation of himself, has some tensions in it. And if we don't learn to deal with the tensions, to be with God 
as we wait for the kingdom coming, then I think we'll develop a theology or develop practices that sort of ignores or pretends or we've got to fake it and to act like there aren't really problems or that we're not groaning or waiting for the fullness. So Paul writes, here's another verse I really like. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And I like that part. And the fellowship of his suffering. And they go together. There are some groups of churches that focus on one and not the other, but they go together because that's the times that we live in. After the resurrection, the Spirit's been poured out and we're waiting for its fullness. So I want to talk to you and give you just five, five little points, moves, take you on a little journey with a couple of stories and scriptures to say, my read of scripture, my read of our experience, the privilege I've had of hanging out with vineyard leaders the last 11 years, here's my understanding of doing life with God when it's hard power groaning. Number one, I want it to be clear, the people of God suffer. The people of God suffer. The Bible is quite realistic about it when it comes to our pain. Pain in scripture is neither minimized or eradicated. It's there. In fact, if you could take some sort of super magnet and drag it across the pages of the Bible and pull out every instance of tears or difficulty or trial or struggle, how much would be left? It's chock full of it. Let me just mention a few to think of it. Lament was a part of the very worship of God. From the fall forward, from Genesis 3 to 11, we see violence taking over on the planet from a peaceful garden. We see Moses who deals with a wayward people. Or Job, who tragically loses livestock and sons and daughters are skipping through, or all the prophets, the difficulties they have. That wasn't exactly an easy thing to do among the people of Israel. Or Job, or, or John the Baptist in the New Testament, who confronts Herod, get this, confronts the king in his time with his adulterous marriage to Herodias and was imprisoned and then beheaded. Or Paul in his ministry, flogged, beaten with rods, imprisoned, shipwrecked, spending the night on the open sea. In fact, he was rejected as an inferior leader by some of his churches. He didn't do enough signs and wonders, and so he was considered an inferior apostle. But he says, look, here's the true test. Can you suffer like Jesus, 2 Corinthians 10 through 13? Justin Martyr in the early church did not get his name from winning a popularity contest. Augustine, who is a leading church father, has written tons of theology that shapes you and me today, whether we realize it or not. He actually struggled with his faith tremendously because he lost his son to a strange illness. Sitting where I sit today, I've had the privilege of hearing three, about 300 vineyard leaders tell me their stories and the various trials that they've faced. I've received permission from one, and I think this is quite illustrative. And let me just give you a little window. It's a pastor, and her name is Sherry, and she lives in Iowa. And several trials in her life, and she faced a bout of leukemia. And when uh, she began treatments, and they let the church know, and people came streaming into her house, you know, of course, prayers for healing as well as medicine and food and all the good things that you would expect for a loving church to do. 
a few people came and just broke down and cried and said, Sherry, why you? Why you? And she let him say it. And as she laid there on the bed and wrestling with it herself, she had a spectacular answer. She said, why not me? What are your expectations about the world that is filled with fallenness and sin and brokenness and the presence of evil that would make you think that I, too, I was privileged somehow to escape difficulty? Why not me? See, the other 300 leaders I've been with, they, the stories I could tell you about miraculous healings, truly, blind eyes being opened, deaf ears being opened, angelic visitations, it's like reading the New Testament. And, and marriages that have fallen apart, prescription drug addictions, the loss of a child in a tragic accident. It's like reading Hebrews 11. You see these powerful deliverances of God as well as trials and difficulty. Whatever, so now, part of me wants to go into talking about the cause of suffering, you know, and sometimes it's sin, and sometimes it's a fallen creation, and sometimes it's our or somebody else's stupid choices, and sometimes it's just because we're waiting. And, and I don't know that we always see the, the cause of that. And, and yes, there's something in there about God disciplining, which is I don't think a lot of the times we blame God for things that he's not doing. I mean, we blame God in, on, on things that is the result of sin and Satan. But I'm not going to solve the cause for this or that particular instance. But what I want to name, number one, is the people of God suffer. Number two, God suffers. Did I just say that? That's been a controversy in the church. Does God suffer? See, in the early centuries of the church, it has a technical name. I won't say, but basically... There was the fear that if we say that God suffers, then we're saying that God changes. And if God changes, then he's not immutable. And immutable means unchanging. And to say he suffers means he's changing. But various theologians throughout the ages have also concluded to say, okay, no, we can say that God is faithful. He is consistent and caring and loving. And yet he does respond, enter into the pain of the world. Let me give you a few examples. As a loving creator who brings about creation and makes a covenant with a people, he opens him up, himself up to suffering. And if you're a part of a family, you know what I'm talking about. To love another, to enter into a covenant relationship, to have children can open you up to disappointment, to pain, to difficulty. And as the creator and covenant maker, God suffers number or B under this. Since the entrance of rebellion and sin in the world, Scripture says God sees and hears, and he suffers. I think of the people of Israel. As they were living out just long, sweaty days under oppression and nights, and they took away any day off, and they just kept them working more and more, it says the Lord heard their groaning and their crying, and he responded. Or Hagar you know the story of Hagar in the Bible? She's mistreated by her boss. She cries out to the Lord, and the Lord comes to visit her. And you know what she calls God? El Roy, the God who sees. And it's the God who sees and hears. He suffers. 
but not only the God who sees and hears, but actually enters into the pain of the world. And this is the good news. One of my favorite verses is, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is what God has exactly done. Enters into and overcomes the pain of the world. And I see them. Now, get this. In the garden, we see him bellowing out in despair and says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Has anyone ever felt that way? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That is the Son of God experiencing that kind of pain. God takes it upon himself. And so when he is at the cross, he says, my God, not his intimate term, Father, that he usually prays, but my God, why have you forsaken me? Our God enters into the pain. The cross holds together God's great affection and love as well as the pain that he enters in. Or as a father who longs and waits. A few years ago, I had a disturbing dream. I actually had a similar dream last night. A disturbing dream about my oldest child's son. I have four kids who are 17, 14, 12, and 9 right now. The youngest uh, three are girls, and they all have birthdays in November. 14, they're about to be 15, 13, and 10. Yes, you're doing the math now. It was cold in February where we lived, okay? It'll hit you later, so. 14, 12. My son, in this dream, we were in an amusement park. And I, he was walking alongside me. And you know at some amusement parks when great crowds will just come sweeping by and just about, you know, take your child with them. Uh, that, that happened in my dream. And I, and I can see him, and then all of a sudden I can't see him. And then I can see him, and then I can't see him. And, and I begin kind of pushing through the crowd, making a fool of myself a little bit, begin just screaming, Colin, Colin, where'd you go? And then in the dream, I really begin making a fool of myself. I'm running up to these tables at restaurants. Have you seen my son Colin pulling out a picture? And, and dreams are bizarre at times. And, 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 and then there was this roller coaster. And you know how they have ladders up the side of some roller coasters? And I just think, whoever climbs those? But in the dream, I began climbing to the top just so I could see out over the park looking for my son. And then the next scene in the dream, it's the end of the day at the amusement park. And you know what that looks like right? All the, the darkness is settling in over the amusement park, and the kids are wearing all the little glowy things, glow sticks, yeah. And I'm at the, the, at the exit, and people are pouring out in their cars, and I can't see a thing, and I'm just looking for Colin in the car, and I can't see him. And just about the last car pulls out, and the park is empty, and I woke up feeling sick. What do you think I did? You bet I went to his room. I went to his room and just kind of put my hand on his shoulder. I was like, okay. And then I sensed the Spirit of God speak to me and said, and that's how you feel about one of your kids. I can't handle the fierce pain and love of God for his kids. 
for a creation that is racked with suffering and wars and poverty, a God who is longing for restoration, for made all things right. He suffers. We suffer. God suffers. Number three, there is a unique quality of relationship in the fellowship of his suffering. When we come together with God in our groaning, this power groaning that I'm talking about, there is a a unique quality of relationship. There's a a theologian named John Mark Hicks, and he writes this book called Yet While I Trust Him. And he he tells the story of moving over to Germany to study, and, and his first wife tragically had a blood clot after surgery, and, and she passed from this life to the next. He moves back to the United States four or five years later into the grieving process and marries again. And they have a son named Joshua. And Joshua, tragically, was born with a genetic condition to where um, his speech wasn't quite right, and and it was terminal. They didn't know how many years that he would live, uh, barring a miracle. And Joshua previously loved to go to school, but all of a sudden he began protesting vehemently that he would not go to school, 15 at the time. So Dr. Hicks goes down to the bus stop to see what's going on. Why is he protesting so vehemently? And he found out. He watched his son, who because of his condition had to wear undergarments, and he stumbled when he walked. As he got onto the bus, the other kids began making fun of him, calling him diaper boy, making fun of the way that he talked and the way that he walked. And Dr. Hicks was devastated. He goes back to his office and just begins to fume. Why are the innocent allowed to suffer? Why can others inflict pain on the innocent and just begins to rail, unleashing his heart before God? because it was in there. And he said, pretty soon, I was intensely aware of the presence of God filling the room. And the Lord responded and said, I know, they treated my son that way too. There is a unique quality of relationship in the fellowship of his suffering. Brennan Manning, I can't do better than just to read this quote, so forgive me as I read and just take in these words here. When tragedy or difficulty makes its unwelcome appearance and we are deaf to everything but the shriek of our own agony, courage flies out the window and the world begins to seem to be a hostile, menacing place. It's the hour of our own Gethsemane. No word, however sincere, offers much comfort or consolation. The night is bad. Our minds become numb. Our hearts go vacant. Our nerves get shattered. How will we make it through the night? And yet, it may happen that these most desperate trials beyond any rational explanation, you may feel a nail-scarred hand clutching yours. Tragedy radically alters the direction of our lives. 
But in our vulnerability and in our defenselessness, we experience the power of the crucified Jesus in his present risenness. I can take you to that scene where Thomas is standing, doubting Thomas before the risen Lord. And he calls him, my Lord and my God. Stop to think about who's he looking at. He's looking at a crucified man with a big hole in his side, holes in his hands, and scars on his back. And he looks at this man and calls him, my Lord and my God. See, in Christ, there is a perfect joining of human pain and divine pain. So get this. Because God has experienced oneness with us in our suffering, you can experience oneness with him in your trial. In a betrayal, whether it's friends or family members or co-workers, you can experience oneness with our rejected Lord. In a difficult marriage, you can experience oneness with our God who has made a covenant with his people that is difficult. As a parent of a child who may have departed from the Lord and perhaps even destroying himself, you can experience oneness with our God who loves and waits. In facing injustice or backstabbing, you can find union with our persecuted and betrayed king. Or in waiting. Waiting. That difficult thing that so many of us experience from time to time you can experience oneness with a God who waits and longs for the restoration of all things. You know, John Wimber, an early leader of the the Vineyard Movement, I heard him once say, you know, I've tried suffering without Jesus, and I've tried it with him, and I like it a whole lot better with him. So number three here is there is a unique quality of relationship in the fellowship of his sufferings. And number four, we're changed. We are transformed there. If I asked you, tell me the most transformative moments of your life, you might mention certain encounters with God by the Spirit, and that would be good, and that would be true for many of us. And I suspect if we went around the room And I asked you, tell me, when was the most transformative time in your life? It would involve some trial, some pain, some difficulty. And I'm not saying God caused it, but I'm telling you, there is some power ministry going on in these deep places. It's like God carves out new places in my being for deeper relationship with Him and for powerful ministry. A friend of mine named Diane, who leads worship as well, She's given me permission to, to share this as well. She, her story is, is tremendous to me. Diane, um, she's the author. She wrote the song, If You Say Go. Uh, I think you might sing that from time to time. But she was married to Kevin, and Kevin had a tragedy where his back uh, was terribly injured, and he was bedridden for about seven years. And I'm making this story a little shorter but seven years that she cares for her husband, Kevin, mainly in bed, working two or three jobs, teenagers at home. Can you imagine the life? How difficulty. They developed a new surgery that she heard about 
that gave them hope that could actually bring health. And they had prayed, and many people had prayed, and, sh- and they thought, well, that God is not healing this. And this new surgery opportunity came along, and so they go for it. So, and guess what? Kevin gets better. Comes out of the bed after seven years gets a real job, and there's a huge adjustment in their marriage, and they think, we're, we're going to have a normal life again for a few weeks. And terribly, a reckless driver on the way home from work, weeks after his back was better, crosses the line, confesses that he had a seizure, and strikes Kevin's car and he moves from this life into the next. And how Diane talks about how she responds to this tragedy has changed my life forever. She said, I knew experiencing this that I could let this crush me. I I could let it destroy me. Or I could let it enlarge me. And so I held on for dear life And I let it enlarge me. Let me read a part of Romans 8 that I think goes well with this from the message. All around us we observe a pregnant creation. And the difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pains. But it's not only around us. It's within us. And the Spirit of God is arousing us within And we're feeling birth pains. And these sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectancy See, we have a choice as we face tragedies. And we can resist, not to say that God caused it, but we can resist the work that he's doing within us during those times. Or we can lean into it and let it deepen us and enlarge us. And lastly, God's, oh, people of God suffer. God suffers. There's a unique quality of relationship there. We are changed by it. We are transformed in suffering. And number five, and here's the good news, God wins. God wins over suffering. Ultimately, he triumphs over it. And we get doses and experiences of that now. And when we have to wait, we know that he will overcome it. And in the meantime, he is not overcome even by our own despair and cynicism. See, in my own life, I remember going through a difficult time. And I went to go see a counselor, and and I was processing through it. And the counselor said to me, it says like, it sounds to me like you've got this really angry hurt part by what's happened here. And then you've got this shameful part that's saying, oh, look, you, you shouldn't be bitter. You know, you should be spiritual. You should be over this. So my form of spirituality looked like this. If the microphone represents the pain, here's what it looked like. If I can stuff it and say, bless God, then this is the holy stance. (laughs) 
praise God, I'm doing okay, you know, but just fuming inside with disappointment and anger and frustration. So the counselor said, why don't we tell this guilty, shameful part to just chill out a little bit? Because guess what? God knows what's in there anyway. So why don't we just let that stuff come up and out and let's allow the Lord to engage it. So what I want you to do, Chris, is go home and write a letter about how you exactly feel sent to the people, some of whom you were angry at, and tell them exactly. I'm not telling you to send it, but just type it out exactly how you think and feel. (laughs) Okay, counselor. You're asking for it. So I go home and I begin to type the letter. Oh, and I won't, can't even quote half of it to you right now. I begin typing exactly how I thought and felt, and my wife walks by the computer and, oh, my word. But I'm telling you, that was the beginning of my healing. It's probably the first time I'd prayed in a long time. I love telling that to the leaders I work with when they finally let out their true thoughts and feelings about things and they say, and and this is what's going on and where is God and what's happening? I said, it sounds like you just prayed for the first time in a long time. And they wonder why, oh, why is prayer life suffering? Well, because you need to pray from your gut, buddy. What's happening? God knows what's in there. So if I were to give you two practical ways forward as we come to a close just so how do I do this power groaning? How do, I, how do I incorporate connecting with God? It's two simple things. Number one is groan with God. Groan with God. You recognize that he has entered into this world. He is joined with you. His Holy Spirit is groaning within you. And you can groan with him. And how to do that, number two, is name your pains. You name them with hope. See, to name them with hope is to say, I'm not going to give into this mood of cynicism and despair, which is not reality. But I'm going to give into God's pain and my pain and God's unyielding goodness. I'm going to give in to his unending mercy towards me and the rest of the planet and name these pains with hope. Let me close with one more story and then we'll pray. Have you heard of Team Hoyt? Dick and Ruth, uh, Judy Hoyt. It's a father-son team. And Rick was born, uh, tragically, that the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck when he was born, and it cut off the oxygen to his brain, and so he was born a quadriplegic. And as he grew, his parents, Dick and Judy, were convinced that he was a very intelligent young man. Uh, Although some of the specialists around were saying, you know, we're just not sure what kind of life he's going to have. But they, in the 1970s, were able to build a computer that actually threw head tilts that Rick could communicate. And when he was about 15 uh, or 17, I don't remember, there was someone uh, in the community that was also injured in a lacrosse game and they put on a benefit run for him. Well, Rick, quadriplegic, tells his dad, not an athlete, I want to run in that race. 
And his dad thought, oh my, it's a 5K. That's three whole miles pushing Rick. Okay, let's do it, son. And they did it. Came in next to last. And they completed that race. And at the end of the race, Rick said, I did not feel handicapped while we were racing. That was 30 years ago. Do you know how many races they've completed since then? Buckle your seatbelts. Team Hoyt has completed 1,108 racing events. 72 marathons. Do you know how long a marathon is? 26.2 miles. They have completed over 255 triathlons. Do you know what you do in a triathlon? Swim 2.2 miles. little light swim. Then you get out and hop on your bike and go for a little stroll of 112 miles. And then you prance through your marathon of 26.2 miles. If you can picture in your mind Dick Hoyt pushing his son, pulling his son in a boat, uh, a little raft, just swimming those two miles and then getting out and mounting him on the front, carrying him to the bike, mounting him on the front of the bike, and then they pedal for 112 miles. And this is the Hawaii uh, Ironman triathlon. And then... He gets to the race and he puts him in a little chair and he runs 26.2 miles. And there's videos on this. You can watch it. Team White. And he crosses the finish line and they're just cheering. And the crowds around him are cheering. Like nothing else I've seen, it gives me a picture of our God who joins us with his two hands of the Son and his Spirit and the race of life and enters into our suffering and will not stop until we reach the goal, until it's finished. So you can rest, you can relax in God's strength and know that he's with you and that he will win over whatever trials that you are facing. Why don't we stand? I want to pray for just a few groups in the room, and then I'll invite the uh, prayer teams up. So the Holy Spirit, God's very presence, is already here. But we're going to open up our hearts to recognize that, and I'm going to invite him to come and touch in very specific ways. So whatever that means for you physically, just relaxing. And we'll be quiet for a moment, so no need to feel awkward. We'll just have a moment of quiet. I'm just going to invite the Spirit to continue to touch and then I'll pray for some specific things and then after that we'll invite the, the prayer teams up so just relax right now Holy Spirit would you search our hearts would you come rest on us right now Some of us have tried suffering without you, and we don't want to do that anymore. We don't want to do it with you. 
I believe some here are needing permission to grieve. You've kind of held it back because it didn't seem like the right or spiritual thing to do. The Holy Spirit just gives you permission. You can grieve with him. Maybe even something you've never told anyone before. You have permission, whether here or elsewhere. You can grieve. Lord, I pray that you would give that person permission or person's permission. Bring healing through those tears. I think there's probably a person or two here that has blamed God for the pain. And you're not seeing that God is actually suffering with you and enters into it and wants to join with you in it. He's not your enemy. He's your Savior. If you just let that go, you can release this image of God of someone to blame, but your champion. And some of you can name pains, but you don't really have any hope. Lord, would you pour hope into their hearts right now? I pray you would use this message and this time and the Holy Spirit that you would elevate their heart beyond cynicism, that they can say some things with hope. Can I invite the prayer teams to come on up? Do you guys do that? Do you have prayer teams that come on up? Uh, one more, just I, there's a sense of someone that had uh, some form of accident, and I'm thinking motorcycle or car or motorcycle accident, and just sort of the grief of that is still something that you've not, uh, that the Lord is inviting you just to push into uh, healing with that incident in your life. So in just a moment, Crispin's going to uh, dismiss us, and if you want to come up for more prayer individually, uh, then please do that.